0: check 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 oh here we go here we go let me pray let me pray bow your heads with me Father thank you so much for your goodness thank you for these young men Lord we are on a a long journey we don't know when our lives will end but as Psalm 90 says that our days are are numbered. Teach us to number our days, Lord. Our lives are like a a vapor, a, a mist. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And so in the meantime, as we are, yes, living as soldiers, we are to be at war, we're to be vigilant, we're to be ready, reaching those with the gospel. God, I pray that you would also teach us how to be good sojourners as we're exiles. This is not our home. So help us to set our hope on things that really matter. And uh, I pray that you would use me and use your word and the Holy Spirit to open up the eyes of these men to make them into the men that you want them to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. So we're going to be in 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter is writing to... Believers, he calls them elect exiles. So God's chosen people, that is, is elect exiles. These are sojourners. These are people that are living in foreign lands. And it's a weird way to call Christians that. And they're dispersed, as we'll see. And they're under extreme persecution. So You've got to keep that in mind. As we talk about this, Nero, who is more than likely the uh, Caesar or one reigning in Rome, was one who set Rome on fire at one point and then blamed it on the Christians. And so there was a massive persecution, which I might talk about some of those people that were persecuted, but literally they would take Christians and they would dress them up in animal skins and they would tie them to posts and then he would light them on fire um, or they'd put them in animal skins and then they would set beasts on them, but then they would also tar, believers set them on a post and light them on fire to light his dinner parties so his parties with people would be lit up by christians literally peter is writing to those those believers so this is important first peter 1 1 through 9 says this to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion dispersion in pontus galatia cappadocia asia and bithynia according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now our main portion. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. I love how forthright Peter is. It is God who caused us to have new spiritual life, to be born again, to be made alive, to a living hope through our good works, through our own will, no, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To, we were saved to something, for something, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, right? A lot of people, their 401ks are their inheritance, their kids, and they're just getting demolished right now because the stocks are going down, right? But this, these stocks, this inheritance that we have is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, this is such good news for you, who by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. That's V-Day, right? V-Day. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise to the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have seen him, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the living word of God. There's a lot there. Yeah. In, in the 1600s, there is this minister by the name of John Bunyan. He was in London, in England. Um, and he was a former serviceman. I didn't know this. He served in the army for the parliament. And God radically saved him and called him to ministry to preach the gospel. And in 1660, however as he's the pastor of Bedford Church, a church in Bedford, he is arrested for preaching the gospel and sentenced to three months of prison. You're like, three months, that's not that bad. But he's able to be released if on the condition that he obeys the government by not preaching the gospel. So he could be released whenever he wants, but the condition is that he must never preach the gospel again. So what does he do? <laughs> the pastor of Bedford Church and the husband of his wife, Elizabeth, and their six children, including one that was blind from birth, he would stay in prison for 11 years. Eleven years. Why? I love this. He says this: "I have determined that I have determined the Almighty God being my help and shield, yet to suffer." If frail life may, may continue so long, even till the moss shall grow on my I- eyebrows, rather than thus violate my faith and principles. He's like, I'd rather stay here and rot. That moss starts growing on my eyeballs rather than violate my faith and my convictions. I will not agree to those terms. I'd rather stay in prison and rot. 11 years. Did he neglect his family? Some people may say that he maybe did. Should he have done that? All I know is this. As though it seemed like Satan was crushing God's people at the time, he would be in Bedford Prison where he would write the second greatest book of all time, the second most best-selling book of all time next to the Bible called The Pilgrim's Progress. And it was that in that book that Bunyan masterfully captures what it means to be a Christian fundamentally a christian who is the main character of the book christian is a pilgrim he is a sojourner he has been exiled right he's a he's an elect exile now on this pilgrimage and he captures so many different facets of the christian life in this book and it's one of my favorite books and i commend it to you to read it it's not very long you should read it this summer But he captures what it means to be a Christian in this fallen world in that book. And that is a pilgrim who has been set free from, one, the city of destruction. Two, set free from enslavement to his sin in the city of destruction. They were worked to death just like the Israelites, a picture of that. And then three, when they were in Egypt. And then three, he was set free from his burden, which was his guilt and shame, his sin that he carried on his back. And now he journeys on to the celestial city. That is his goal. That is his hope. Why do I bring this up? Because a man of the king is a pilgrim. You are a soldier, but you are also a pilgrim. Remember the D-Day illustration in V-Day. There's this time that we are wanderers. Remember what happened to Israel. God saves them out of Egypt And then brings them into what? The wilderness. And it is in the wilderness for many years that they would have to travel and learn to trust God before they're brought into the promised land. And guess what? Peter is drawing on the same exact language of being in exile. That this is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. Yes, citizens of earth now, but in reality, we belong to a greater country, a a promised land. This is not our home. And so a Christian is a pilgrim, a sojourner, an exile, living in the already not yet, as God's people have always been. And my concern for you as young men today is that due to sin, fear of man, lust, and temptation, We have had a hard time keeping our, the eyes of our heart on the very place that we belong. We've become distracted with other pursuits, other missions, other journeys, rather than keeping our eyes on the purpose, on the mission, on the finish line. And that's what a pilgrim does. is It's someone who lives in this world, who suffers through this world, through pain, through suffering but has this hope of that promised land that one day God will bring him all the way home. I'm trying to give you paradigms that when, to think about, okay, what does it mean for me to be a believer? What does it mean for me to be a man as a Christian? And so when you wake up every morning, you should sleep with your sword by your bed. You have your Bible. It should be the first thing that you pick up in the morning. You take it everywhere that you go. Be a man of the word, right? You're a soldier. But then also, you've got to have the perspective that this is not our home. And I think this will help you when you are discouraged, when you're, you're caught in despair, when you're like, this is hard. My life is hard. But there's something beyond this life. There's a real hope. And I think it's a message that young men need today because we're so caught up in the now. And so as the king's pilgrim, so our lives are to be marked by six things, six characteristics of a true man, six characteristics of a pilgrim. As we look to the things that are unseen rather than the things that are seen. And the first from first Peter is gratitude, gratitude. You are to be marked be a man of gratitude, man of thanksgiving. Where do I grab this from? Look at verse three. Look how Peter, in the light of persecution, in the light of suffering, how does he start off this section? He's trying to, inc- remember, these people are suffering. You would think he'd say, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry that you're suffering. And these are, and he- No, he starts off with blessed, <laughs> eulogy in the Greek. He starts singing, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a gratitude there. There's a blessing there. He's trying to get their minds off of their, cur- their, curtain, their curtains, their current circumstances to realize that they have been saved by grace. Blessed be the God, not of Abraham, not of Jacob, but of our Lord Jesus Christ, your Father. Jesus is our Savior, our King, and God is our Father Fill, be filled with gratitude that you have escaped the city of destruction. I love Ephesians 1.3 because it also says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you realize who you are and what you have in Christ Jesus? That fundamentally you have been brought into union with Christ Jesus, that you are his and all that is his is yours. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in the midst of pain and suffering, and trial, and heartache, you could still say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You could have gratitude because God has saved you by grace through faith alone. Nothing in you has earned salvation. He has done it for you. Praise be to God. Satan's chief strategy from the beginning is to tempt God's pilgrims into discontentment. Is that not what he does with Adam and Eve? God, the Father, graciously creates this garden and says, all this is yours. All these trees you can eat of, everything is yours. Except for this one tree, right? Now, what does Satan do? He he tempts Eve to not think about all the blessings, all the things that God has done for her and given her, and just to focus on the one negative to, to, to plant the seed of discontentment, of bitterness in her. To change her heart. To see, man, God must be a killjoy. He steals her gratitude. She should have been uh, thanks, thankful for what God has done. And I fear that many of you have been tempted in the same way. That you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. By grace, through faith in Christ Jesus. And yet we're so focused on the negative things. We're so focused on the things that we're not content with. When we should be men who are filled with thanksgiving in a world that is filled with complaining and grumbling and whining. We should be men of gratitude. First and foremost, that's the first mark of a pilgrim. They are thankful. They have been saved. Second, the second mark is faith. Faith, a, a pilgrim, a king's, the king's pilgrim is marked by faith. This is true because when you go to Hebrews 11, you start to see this. Well, let's look at First Peter first before we jump into that. First Peter 1, 5. What does it say this? It says that we are guarded, our inheritance is being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now look at verse eight. This is so characteristic of us. Though you have not seen him. How many of you have seen Jesus? No, I'm sorry if you've watched The Chosen. That is not Jesus. That is some American actor, right, with makeup on. Jesus would not wear makeup. (laughs) Though you have not seen him, you love him. You love him. Why? Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice in the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What is faith? What is faith? The Heidelberg Catechism explains this. He says this true faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but it's also an assured confidence, which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart. That not only to others, but to me also, the remission of sin, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. These things, eternal life, we have not experienced that yet. But in a real sense, it is ours now. We live by faith. It's a confidence in God's word. It's not a blind faith. Rather, it's looking to the things that are unseen. Look to, uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 11, just real quick. Hebrews 11 is called, people call it the hall of faith, right? And it's just walking through all these Old Testament figures and how they trusted in the promises of God, though they never apprehended those promises in their life. They were saved by faith. Hebrews 1, 11, or sorry, 11, 1 through 2 says this about faith. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's a theme there. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now jump down to verse 8. He wants to talk about Abraham who was a sojourner in the land. He was a pilgrim, the father of the nation of Israel. And many other nations. It says, "By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. <laughs> I don't know where God's going to lead me the next day or the next five years, the next 10 years, but we have His word, we could trust Him. That's what Abraham was doing. He didn't know where he was going, but he, he didn't know where he was going, but he was going to trust in God. I'm going to take him at his word. Verse nine. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Then look what it says in verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of the sand of the seashore. These all died in faith, this is the key, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they were seeking a homeland if they were if they had been thinking of the land that uh, from which they had gone out they would have had opportunity to return but as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one therefore god is not ashamed to be called their god for he has prepared for them a city the idea is they were called to go to a place, they had no idea where they were going, but they were going to trust God. And in the same way, friends, as we walk through this world, we live our lives, we must look to the true city, the city that we're going to, the the hope that we have, that future place one day in the new heavens, new earth. Living by faith is foolish to our world. For example, Noah building the ark pretty foolish, right? You really think God's going to flood the earth? He starts building the ark because he takes God at his word. Israelites putting blood on a door. You could just hear Egyptians going, ha, what are you doing? That's pretty superstitious, man. Why are you putting blood on a door? That's kind of weird. You really think that's going to save you? And there's this spooky angel that's going to come tomorrow night and kill every firstborn and that blood's going to save you? Psh. You're going to send out David, that puny little guy, to you know, go and fight this behemoth of a man, Goliath, Really? Really, this, blue, this blue-collar, homeless guy named Jesus, the one who's hanging on the cross, he's going to be the one that's going to save everyone from their sins. Seems foolish, right? But by faith alone, he is the savior of the world. It's foolish to the world. Faith must mark the pilgrimage, the one, of the pilgrim, because it's marked by pain and suffering. Our, our, our lives, our journeys are hard. We must look not to this life, but we must look to Christ, resting in him. And so the mark of a pilgrim is gratitude, faith, and then three, hope. Hope. These kind of go together. Hope. Not the NF album, which doesn't mention the gospel once which is kind of sad because I like the album. It's more like self-help. Hope. Look at 1 Peter 3.3. 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not a dead Hope. Not a half-alive hope, but a living hope, a real hope. Now, what is hope? Because we always use this language: I hope I get a raise. I hope I could date that girl. I hope that I could live in Nashville. I hope that I can see the politics of Illinois change. I hope, I hope, I hope, right? That Green Bay Packers will win a Super Bowl. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope right? Not right it's kind of like wishful thinking right there's not really confidence it's more like you're just saying it but hope is a confident expectancy so definitionally biblically this is what it means hope does not arise from the individual's desires or wishes but from god who himself is our hope My hope is in you, Psalm 39, seven. God is our hope. So genuine hope is not wishful thinking, but a firm assurance about the things that are unseen and still coming. And so our hope is living, why? Because Christ is living. He rose from the dead, that's what the passage says. And because he is living, therefore all the promises that he has given us are in fact true and living and we could confidently expect them to come. That is good news, especially for the Christian in the midst of suffering. When you're in the battle as a soldier and you get sliced and diced up by the enemy, and now you're despairing, am I really a Christian? Does God really love me? You have a sure, a confident expectancy that no matter what you do, God the Father will never let you go because his love cannot be separated. You cannot be separated from his love. He's not one who divorces his bride. He's not one who adopts a child and then kicks kicks them to the curb when they mess up. Your hope is tied to Christ if you're in him. And because you're united to Christ and he is living, therefore all the promises that come with him are living as well. Therefore, a man of God is marked by gratitude, faith, and hope. He is a heavenly-minded man. He is a heavenly-minded man. Always looking to the celestial city. Always looking to heaven. Always looking ahead. And far too many of us young men, our eyes are on the things that are seen. Things that are right in front of us. our, Our phones, our entertainment, our job. Whatever it is, we're so focused on those things. It's like my daughter... Eden, when I'm trying to get her attention, she's sitting right next to me and she's looking around I'm like, look at dad, look at dad. And I literally have to take her cheeks and I have to like move her head to like look at me because she's so fixated. Like even yesterday, there's some turkeys in our backyard and they're, they're doing their, their thing. And I'm like, look at the turkey. And she's just looking around. And I like have to take her eyes and I have to focus on it so that she can see it. And that's exactly what happens when, You come across the word of God and his promises. God's trying to just focus your eyes on what is right and what is true so that you can have a living hope. And in the midst of suffering, your eyes are so focused on your circumstances. And then it's just, you just go deeper and deeper into that hole of despair. We need to be a heavenly minded men. Friends, this is vital because you and I will suffer. Some of you, will be diagnosed with diseases, with cancer, with sickness, with maybe you'll lose your job. Maybe you'll be persecuted because your faith. Perhaps you'll be married and you'll lose a child in the womb. Maybe you'll lose a, a loved one in your life unexpectedly. Many of you, that will happen. Some of that has already happened to you. You've gone through, you've seen divorces. You've seen families split, loved ones. Maybe you've been rejected yourself or or abuse. These things will happen. We will suffer. We need a hope. Think about your friends that don't know Jesus Christ. What hope do they have? What legitimate hope do they have? They don't have one. This is not wishful thinking. (laughs) This is a real living hope in Christ Jesus. I love Romans 5, 3 through 5. It says this about hope. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I love that. Suffering is for your good. How? As it says in the text that I just read, it produces endurance or steadfastness. I love that word because it's got my last name in it. Steadfastness. It means to remain under trial. So it's like, those, it's like the man that does the deadlift, clean and presses. You got the pressure, you got the trial over you, and now you're holding it. Endurance. Have you guys seen the movie Unbreak, Unbroken? Have you seen that movie or read the book? Let's go. He went to USC. Fight on. <laughs> holding, he's holding up the, the beam, right? That is a great picture of endurance in suffering. But we can do that in our life because we have a real hope and a real power within us to help us in times of need. The Holy Spirit. The second thing about suffering that is really important for you to understand is that when you suffer, you have to realize that you are sharing in the very sufferings of Christ. That you need to be like your Savior who suffered in this life. And so when that pain comes, you could say, Jesus, I know what what you went through at some degree. And I know that you can associate with my pain and sympathize with me because you're a great high priest and I get to share in your sufferings. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, character and hope. So character in men is forged in the fire of affliction. And God's best soldiers are called out of the highlands of affliction, Charles Spurgeon said. The world is hopeless, men. We need to be men of hope. So gratitude, faith, hope. And then the fourth is love. Love. Due to the grace of God in our lives, the real and living hope that we have, the man of God must be marked by love. I love verse 8 and 1 Peter. It says, though you have not seen him, yet you love him. You love him. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. And what was able to get him through his suffering, he was martyred at the age of 86. Polycart, I love this picture. What, what, what got him through life? It was a deep love, a deep love and affection for his Savior. So it says this, <laughs> I love this. Polycarp, the venerable bishop of Smyrna, hearing the persons were seeking for him, escaped, but was discovered by a child. The child, after feast or after feasting the guards who apprehended him, he desired an hour in prayer. So the guards come to him and he says, Hey, they're gonna take him to kill him, to mart to to burn him at the stake. He says, Can I have some time to pray? They give him a, an hour which being allowed, he prayed with such fervency that his guards repented that they had been instrumental in taking him. They heard his prayers and they repented over their sin. He was, however, carried before the pro-council, condemned and burnt in the market, marketplace. The pro-council then urged him saying, swear and I will release thee. Reproach Christ. So they're saying, hey, we will let you off the hook if you blaspheme God. Reproach Christ, call Caesar Lord. Polycarp answered, 86 years I have served him and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? It's just a deep affection for, for Jesus. At the stake to which he was tied, he was only tied but not nailed as usual. As he assured them he should stand immovable, the flames On their kindling of the wood, encircled his body like an ark without touching him. And the executioner, on seeing this, was ordered to pierce him with a sword. So they set him ablaze, but he wasn't burning, is what they're saying. So they had to pierce him with a sword, just like his savior. And when so great a quantity of blood flowed out, it extinguished the fire. This is pretty amazing. Fox Book of Martyrs. That'll put hair on your chest, too. (laughs) Seriously, you should pick it up and read it. Just a deep love for his Savior. John thirteen thirty one. I just want to say this. That God's pilgrims here are marked by love. He says this. Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. But a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The fifth mark then. So we see faith, so gratitude, faith, hope, love, and joy. Look at verse six in first Peter. Verse six, in this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. We ought to be men who are known to sing in the fire. Known to, this is their, I have this other book here. It's all about the afflictions of Christians. It's called Singing in the Fire. It's pretty awesome. This other book called Fair Sunshine, about 10 martyrs. If you want to read their stories, pretty awesome. But they were men who would sing as they went to their deathbeds for Jesus. They were filled. They, were, they counted it worthy to suffer with Christ, to suffer for Christ, It was a joy. Their pilgrimage was hard, but they rejoiced. Like Paul and Silas when they were singing hymns as they were shackled in solitary confinement, right? Like the soldiers of the old who would sing battle songs as they would advance on the enemy. It's so fascinating to me when I think of the Revolutionary War and they had the guy like drumming, right? And it's like, they had these guys that would sing as they would go to war. That's a good picture of the pilgrim as though, yeah, life is hard. We fight many battles, but we sing through them. There's something about that. There's a joy that we are to have. And so gratitude, faith, hope, love, joy, all these things are a fruit of the spirit stemming from the power of the gospel. But I cannot stop here because I believe that you, though you understand this paradigm of being a, pil- a pilgrim, all these character traits, I think that you understand them but I want to get really practical. So turn to your Bibles to Je- Jeremiah 29. I'm just going to read this. I'm going to let you guys discuss this later on in groups. So there's way more I could say, but I don't want to weary you. Um, Jeremiah 29. I want you to talk about this in your discussion groups after our next game here. Because we've got to wake up. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. I'm just going to read this, exhort you, and then we'll end. So God's people are going into exile. So what are we supposed to do as pilgrims? Okay, God's going to take us to heaven. Do we just sit around? i got to have faith, gratitude, hope, love, all these things. But how does that work out practically? What am I supposed to do? Because I get it, we're on this pilgrimage, but I don't feel like I'm traveling anywhere. I'm gonna be stuck in Rockford the next 50 years of my life, right? So what am I supposed to do, right? And so Jeremiah 29, look at verse four. This is what God commands his exiles to do. I love this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. What does he tell them to do? Verse five. Okay, let's get really practical. One, what are you supposed to do? First, build houses and live in them. What does that mean for you? It means that we are to infiltrate the city of Rockford by buying property. I mean this literally. You should do that. Become self-sufficient. Get yourself to the place where you could actually do that. Where you could actually build a home and then you fill the home with Women and children. Well, one woman and children. <laughs> in my case, it's, it's my wife and my daughter, so women, all right? A woman and children. But first, you need to build a house. You need to have the means in order to do that. So get to work. Start building something. It doesn't mean like an actual house, but start building something in your life. Build a job, build a career, build a ministry. Get to work, build houses, live in them. Don't be idle. Don't twiddle your thumbs. Get to work, he's saying. Build houses and live in them, become self-sufficient. Then it says plant gardens and eat. Okay, what's a garden? A garden provides food. So how do we do that today? Work, work hard. You could plant a literal garden. That's great. Build a homestead. Awesome. But I'm sure not many of you will do that. So I think the principle here is work hard, make money, pick a career or job and be the best worker that you can be and make as much money as you could be so that you can bless other people so that you can eat and that you can feed others. The mantra of today is make as much money for you so that you could have pleasure, so that you could spend it all on you and you could travel the world. It's really, Paul says in Ephesians 4 25, it says, Let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with those in need. The point of your work is so that you can have something to eat, first and foremost, but that's so that you can provide for others. Then. We get to number three, your favorite, get married, right? Find a woman and get married. You need a helper for your mission, but she is not the mission. She's to come alongside you. You are a train, right? You have your mission. It's to glorify God in your work. You're building your house. You're planting gardens, right? You're doing these things. You're heading that way. She's either gonna hop on the train or not. Some of you, you're stopping for far too long for a girl, just hoping that she hops on the train. She ain't hopping on. Just keep going. Until one does. (laughs) The end destination is the glory of God, not a girl. She's going to hop onto your mission to help you in that. So notice the order. Build houses, live in them. Plant gardens and eat. Then marriage. Marriage. Far too many men are seeking marriage. They don't have a house. They want a date, but they don't have a house. They, they don't, they're not self-sufficient. Do those things first. Then find a wife. And do it as fast as you can, I would say. Then fill the house. Let, your whim, let the woman, your wife, then produce life. Isn't that amazing? When you get married, the woman has this amazing ability called getting pregnant to then bear you children, to fill the home. Have kids, multiply, marry off your kids so that they have more kids. What's this whole vision is just to take the city from within. Then it says, seek the welfare of the city. Evangelize, right? Get to work, call out wickedness, fight for justice. Use your strength to benefit your neighbors. Then it says, pray. I love that. Pray. Seek God above all else. Protect your, and it says, protect your, don't listen to the false, false teachers. Pretty sure that's, verses, that's verse nine, verse eight and nine. No sound doctrine so that you can refute false teaching. First Peter two says this, what are you supposed to do in the exile? First Peter two, where is this? Sorry, there it is, beloved. I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the on the day of visitation. So kill your sin. Walk countercultural, loving Jesus, and then you'll love this. First Thessalonians four in the New Testament if you don't think that this applies. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. Listen to this. And to aspire, we urge you to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The pilgrim just lives an ordinary life. Building houses, planting gardens, getting married, having kids, seeking the welfare of the city, praying, destroying false teaching, killing sin, living quietly. I love that. So gratitude, faith, hope, love, joy, and then just ordinary living. Seek God first and foremost. Get to work in the meantime. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this topic. We are pilgrims and soldiers for you. I love the hymn, Christ is Mine Forevermore. It says, mine are days here as a stranger, pilgrim on a narrow way, one with Christ I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. But mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. And he has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. Help us to keep our minds off the things that are seen and to keep them on the things that are unseen. Things, You, Lord, to keep them on you, are living hope. Lord, and as we suffer, I pray that we would do so with joy, knowing that this... This life will come to an end, and one awaits us, an inheritance that is, that is imperishable. It will not fade, kept in heaven for you, guarded by faith and kept by God for us. Keep our eyes on those things, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take a five-minute break, and we're going to hop into our next game. And you guys are definitely going to wake up at this one. Trust me, no one will get wet. And then uh, the third time, we're just going to spend time in discussion, Okay. I want to discuss all these things. So take five minutes and.